church. Uh, I want to start this way today. So many of us are burdened by what is happening around the world, in particular in Ukraine, and we're watching real time the lives of innocent civilians, children, uh, elderly, uh, mothers, wives being killed. And when we see things like that, uh, we wonder how do we respond? And I'll be speaking more into this later, but I thought it would be appropriate today if I would just kind of tell you my thoughts on this uh, as, we, as we get started today. How do we as believers respond in times like these? And, and I, I think one of the things, because we're so burdened by it, we don't know what to do. How do we react and how do we respond? And I think there is a sense in which when things like this happen, it gives us an opportunity as believers in Jesus and as parents to be able to speak into the lives of our children about the value of freedom and the clear uh, sides of good and evil. And it gives us a teaching opportunity. And so I want to encourage you as parents, it's okay. They're seeing the images. It's okay to describe the difference between uh, right and wrong, good and evil, and the value of freedom. I think sometimes when history passes us by, and we don't seem like we're in the middle of the conflict, we forget the great value of freedom and the sacrifice that it takes. And so I think this is a teaching opportunity for our children. I do think that when we say, I don't know what to do, I want to remind you that there is tremendous power in prayer. It, it, it allows us to have the opportunity to unite with God's heart and to unite with the people who are being harmed and say, God, we know and we pray for strength. We pray for wisdom in the middle of this. And so, God, we pour out to you in the middle of that. And I also want to say, sometimes when we're burdened, we lose hope and we think, well, maybe there is no hope here and, and I'm, or I'm so discouraged by it, I can't live my life. And so can I just encourage you all, stay hopeful and continue to be prayerful and to continue to live your life and day to day say, how can I make a difference in this world? Because in moments like this, we're reminded that the thing that's most important is what God is doing in the hearts of people for eternity. And God is using the tragedies of the things that are happening in Ukraine to turn the hearts of many people onto Christ. And that is, is a great um, blessing because that's what matters most. And can I remind all of us today that that is what matters most here as well. It, what matters most is that we respond with a heart that says there is urgency in the moment. And for all of us, we need to be ready at a moment's notice to say, God, what matters most is eternity. Help us to focus on that. So while you're burdened, be prayerful. While you're watching the events unfold, teach your children the value of freedom and sacrifice. And even in the midst of the burden, be hopeful and remember what matters most is God's kingdom and eternity. And with that, let me pray. God, we just pray today that you would be with the people of Ukraine. God, those who are suffering. God, those who are struggling today. And God, I pray that in the midst of these shelters or in the midst of the train station or in different areas where people are huddled, God, that your spirit would be working in the lives of people, and that, God, that your gospel would be spread to people, that no matter what they face, that, God, there is a great eternity ahead. And I pray, God, for wisdom, for the leaders of Ukraine, the leaders of our country, and the, the global community. And, God, we pray against evil. We pray against the evil of the world. 
And God, we pray that ultimately that you would bring about good in the midst of hardship. And we ask that in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I read something once by a psychologist who said that in order to be happy, the human soul has to have a sense of freedom, has to know that they're valuable, and that they don't walk around ashamed or condemned. And these are the three things that we all need to know, that we are valued by someone or we're valued in general, that we have a sense of freedom and that we're able to walk around and not feel ashamed or condemned. And yet many people, the psychologist said, are overshadowed in their life by a lurking sense of judgment. Sometimes it's regret over something specific that happened in their life. Sometimes people can't quite put their finger on it. It's just a feeling of, I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. I'm not able to perform enough. Or maybe this thought, if people only saw the real me, then nobody would like me. And so they walk around with this fear of maybe if people saw me the way that I am, they wouldn't like the real you. And they walk around with this sense and they are not at peace. And so today what I want to do is walk through Psalm 32. We're doing a series called Love Psalms. And today is Psalm 32. We're going to talk about how David tells us all, if you want the secret to happiness and real abiding joy in life, um, <laughs> I have a flying uh, critter um, around me. Okay, goodbye. Um, but anyway, so what would I do to have that kind of peace that passes understanding? Well, listen to the words of Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed are those. And when he says the word blessed, he's saying that happier those are with this deep abiding peace in your life whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. You guys ever been there? Where maybe there's something that you've had in your past or maybe something now and you feel so burdened by it and you feel so convicted by it. It is like your bones are wasting away, like you're in the heat of summer. Everybody, anybody ever had the pain of guilt in your life? I told some of you this story, but I think I owe my brother and my dad some money. <laughs> I'm, this guy's going to continue to distract me as long as he's flying around me, but maybe I'll just ignore him from now on and you guys will just see this as a happy moment. You know, it's just a happy, happy little stink bug. Anyway, um, so uh, anyway, I think I owe my brother and my dad some money because when I was about 10 or 11 years old, you guys know that my dad was into old cars. I mean, he loved old cars. And he partnered with my brother, and they bought a 1957 Chevrolet, all right? It was a four-door 1950 Chevrolet. I think they paid each of them $500 to partner up to get this 1957 Chevrolet. Now, my dad usually parked them somewhere in the yard, oftentimes in the driveway. In this case, he parked it down at the lower part of our yard. And one day, I was out in the backyard, and I saw we had this huge tree in our backyard, and I picked up a rock, and I thought, I'm going to hit that tree. And, and I, I mean, I was, I, was, I, was a, I was a third grade all-star on my little league team. I mean, come on. I should be able to hit the tree. And, and, I, and I took a big, uh, big backswing at it, and I threw that rock as hard as I could. And wouldn't you know, it missed the huge tree, went over the fence, and went straight into the windshield of that 1957 Chevrolet. 
And I thought, oh no, my stomach sank. I, I, I was so overwhelmed. I ran over there thinking, maybe it didn't make a mark. And I looked on the windshield, and there's a pock mark right where that rock hit. And I went right up to my room, and I was crying, and I'm like, oh no. And my mom's like, it's dinner time, and I can't get out of the room for dinner. I'm like, no, I don't feel good. You know, and a couple days passed. And every time my dad would get out of the house, I would have this overwhelming sense of guilt, this burden, and I would not know what to do with it. And I was just thinking, oh no, it's going to come out. I'm going to have to tell him. And about three days later, I was out at the driveway shooting basketball, and, and my dad, I watched him get out of the garage and walk down the yard, down to that 1957 Chevrolet, and I was like, here it comes, here it comes. It's it. My life is over, and this is it. The life that I have once known and loved is now over, and he looked at that windshield, and sure enough, I mean, wouldn't you know, he noticed it right away. Came right back up, my brother and I playing basketball. Remember, Jonathan had invested in this car with him. I did not tell Jonathan either. And, uh, and I'm shooting basketball, and Dad goes, boys, you know what happened to this windshield? I'm like, okay, I'm trying to think, you know, what happened to that windshield? You know, I'm trying to think of a good story. You know, he goes, I'll tell you what happened. Those boys down the street, they shot a BB gun at the, at the windshield, put a, put a mark in it with a BB gun. First of all, I'm like, that's impressive. He thinks my rock throwing is about the same velocity as a BB gun. That's awesome. But then I'm thinking, oh, man, that's it. That's, that's the story I'm sticking with, man. And uh, I said nothing. I was like, yeah, those doggone neighbors shot the BB gun. And uh, I did not tell my dad the truth for years, decades. In fact, um, and, and I really did. I really carried this. I mean, not like every day, but I thought about it. You know, I'm like, I should probably tell them that it was me who hit the windshield. But it was at lunchtime one day and we were there and dad was, we were all talking at the family lunch and he told a story about when he was a kid, he did something wrong and he didn't confess it. And I was like, this is my window of opportunity that <laughs> I've waited and literally, I'm not kidding, it was 30 years after the moment. And I said, well, by the way, now that we know you're such a sinner, you know, I, I'm the one who hit the windshield of that 1957 Chevrolet. That was the first time that I had confessed it to my dad and my brother. I think I might owe them both $500. Here, here's the thing. You ever been there? That moment of, oh, man. I've done something so bad, and I feel so bad about it. And when you do that, you don't walk around with this sense of peace. You walk around with a sense of burden. And so today, we're going to walk through Psalm 32 and talk about what does it mean to really, truly walk in freedom. And I would say to find happiness in your life, this idea of being blessed, you must honestly own your sin. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I didn't cover it up. That is a clear uh, reference back to Genesis, where Adam and Eve sinned before God, and their immediate reaction before this, they were naked and they were not ashamed, and immediately after, they covered themselves with fig leaves, and then they hid from God. And God showed up in the garden and immediately he called out to them from hiding and he made them uncover themselves from behind the bush and then he was able to deal with their sin. And then he killed a lamb and he made them coverings and he gave them a picture of what was to come that the seriousness of sin indicated that, a, that, that, that the innocent 
Uh, the innocent lamb, the blood of the innocent lamb had to be taken, a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus is the innocent lamb and would take upon our sins because of his blood. And here's the lesson. In order for God to cover their sin, they first had to uncover. They did what we so often do when it comes to sin in our life. And the first thing we typically do is that we try to start justifying it. I mean, the very first thing in the Garden of Eden after God brings them out from hiding, he says, what have you done? And Adam replies, the woman that you gave me made me eat it. It's her fault. And in that one sentence, he blamed both the woman and God. The woman you gave me, God, ultimately this is your fault, not my fault. And we do the same. The reason I did this is because of the situation I'm in. I've been treated badly, so I'm justified. Or I haven't had all the privileges that other people have had. Or I've worked hard and I deserve more than what I've been given. Or uh, my spouse isn't responding to me intimately. That justifies me. Or what I'm doing isn't that bad in comparison to others. And especially with what they do, I'm not too bad. You will never be completely content that way. David is saying, don't do that. Yes, others sinned against him. Yes, he had difficult things in his life. but, But he's saying, I'm not justifying that. It's not the woman that God gave me or the circumstances he put me in. It's not that I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd or the wrong crowd is influencing me. It's just simply that I sinned against God. In the words of that great theologian, Led Zeppelin, it's nobody's fault but mine. Ever had somebody apologize to you by saying, I'm sorry I did this, but I did it because you did this. There's a justification in that, and it happens relationships. God's forgiveness begins where blame shifting ends. God's forgiveness begins where blame shifting ends. And and the word here is the word acknowledge, which basically isn't just I'm speaking it, it's I'm putting myself in the shoes of the one that I hurt. And I'm saying, how did this feel to them? The classic expression of this is often if um, people often say, if I've offended you, I'm sorry meaning I'm sorry not for what I did, but I'm sorry that you're upset about it. But instead, what we need to do when we confess is say, I'm sorry that I did it, and then leave it at that. Secondly, to find happiness, you have to learn to hate your sin and not just the consequences. Verse 5, it says, I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Again, confession to God means you put yourself in God's shoes. You say, how does God see sin from his perspective? And in other words, what I've done, how does God see what I've done? What does he think about sin? A lot of people confess their sin and they turn from it because of the consequence gets painful. And that might be a good motivator. But ultimately, God's saying that when you return, you return to me, not because of what the pain is, but because the value of the relationship you have with me. You have to see sin the way I see sin. In Psalm 32, 9, the imagery is really descriptive. He says, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not, or you, they will not come to you. Anybody in here ever tried to ride a mule? Raise your hand real high. Have you ever tried to ride a mule? A couple of you all guys. Um, anyway, uh, but so it's, uh, I, I had the opportunity to ride a mule one time. Uh, it was when I was at Milligan College, and somehow I got roped into playing donkey basketball. Now, that's exactly, is that what you did, Paul? It's exactly the same as what you think. 
literally, you're on the basketball court. They covered it, thank goodness. Little guys running around picking up poop. That's literally what they're doing. The whole school shows up, donkey basketball, two teams against each other. I got one of those stubborn mules. I'm thinking, I'm going to crush this. I'm going I'm I'm to have every record they've ever set in donkey basketball. And um, I've got the bridle, you know, and I'm giving it the kick. It's got no saddle, so you're just like holding on for dear life. You can't bounce the ball, but literally you take the basketball. You're trying to get your donkey going, and, and, you're, try- and you're throwing the ball ahead to somebody. You're passing it, and then somebody's trying to shoot. Let me just say, it's a very low-scoring game, all right? There was not much scoring. It was a comedy event, and I didn't know what I was getting into. But I can tell you from experience, when a mule does not want to be moved, that mule ain't moving. They are stubborn. And that's why he said in this verse, don't be like the mule that, that, uh, that is only controlled through pain, through the bit or the bridle or a kick in the side. God said, don't be that way. I want you to obey, not because you're coerced, not because you're kicked in the side. I want you to obey, not from the pain, but from your heart. And he's saying, when you're obedient, do it because you love me, because we're in relationship with each other. A lot of people avoid sin because they're afraid of what mothers might think of them or they're afraid of the consequences. And that is a motivator. But God is saying, I want you to do it because you love me. I want you to do it because you love me. Let's just say that I told you all today that for the last week, we've had someone, I've, uh, I've, I've had someone follow you with a cell phone video day and night, and they have watched all that you have done. And for fun today, for the next 10 minutes, I have did a little editing. We're just going to show everybody's life for the last week. Would that be fun? That'd be fun. Now, how many of you would want that to happen? Some of you are like, hey, it wouldn't be too bad. I've had a pretty good week. You know, others of you would be like, oh, don't do that. I mean, this has not been a good week. And I've said some things and done some things. And certainly, I don't want that to be shown to everybody. And of course, we wouldn't. But remember that the Bible says that God's eyes look to and fro around the earth, that God knows what we do. He knows what we think. And he wants us to be in relationship with him. He wants us to be motivated, not for fear of being found, but instead motivated by love. Charles Spurgeon one time said, when we think too highly of sin, we think too lightly of the Savior. Number three, to find happiness, you must actually change direction. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. He says, I'll teach you a new way to go. In other words, when you confess, there's also a change of direction in your life. The biblical word for this is the word repentance. And the way that I used to describe it over all the years that I've taught it is like, it's like a BMX bike that you're going on a BMX bike and you suddenly do a 180 and you go the other direction. Or it's like a skateboarder who's on a half pipe. It comes up onto the edge of it, flips around and goes back the other way. I like those illustrations until Rob Carpenter from our church here gave me a different illustration, and he said he heard it this way. It's like you're on the highway, and you get off in an exit, and you used to live to the left, and yet you sold that house, and now you bought a house that's on the same exit, but it's to the right, and so when you get off on that exit, now all those years of habit, all those years of what you used to do, all those years of that used to be my residence 
kind of get you to the place where sometimes you forget and instead of getting in the right-hand lane, you get in the left-hand lane. And instead of turning right, you turn left and you start to go that direction toward that old house. I mean, after all, you like that house. That house was comfortable. There were old friends at that house. You liked the neighbors. You liked the playground. And so sometimes you like to go play in the playground of the old house. But remember, that is not your house anymore. Your house is this direction. And when you get off that exit, you have to turn to the new house. And, and I know, because we've all done it. <laughs> we have this tendency, I think, to sometimes go back to old habits or old views or old thoughts or old sins, because why? That's where we live for so long. Repentance means even if you're going that direction, you remember, you literally turn the car around and you go to the new way, the new purpose that God has for you, the new address. You go to a new place. And I love that idea because, listen, biblical confession and repentance is not perfection. It is a new direction. So when you are going to repent or when you're going to confess, it's not a new, it's not perfection. It's a new direction. You literally are turning and going a different way. When you realize where you are, you turn around and go a new direction. But don't keep going back. So to find happiness, you have to actually change direction. The last thing I would say is to find happiness. You have to rest in God. And I know that seems like something that I would say in a church setting, like, okay, of course you're going to do that. But listen to what the psalmist did as he acknowledged that he confessed. He's changed his way. He's acknowledged his sin. He's confessed it to God. And now he finds strength and rest in God. Verse 5 says, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you, and while you may be found, surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You, are, you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The English Standard Version says, shouts of deliverance. And that reminds me of the words that Jesus shouted from the cross. It is finished. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, it's finished. The debt's been paid. Our past sins, our present sins, our sins of the future, it's all been paid. It's all been taken care of. Let's say somebody that you love has a car and they missed some payments and now it's going to be repossessed. And so you learned about this. You went down to the bank and you said, you know what? I'm not just paying it up. I'm paying it off. And you pay that thing in full. And then you show up at their house and there's already a tow truck there to take that car away. And you go out and you start to shout, don't take the car, don't take the car. I've paid it off. I've paid it in full. And now, therefore, that truck driver drives away. You hand that receipt to the, your loved one and they are overwhelmed with the sense the debt has been paid, not partially, but completely. It's been paid fully. And it reminds me of what, what the old song, It Is Well, says to us. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, I know today a lot of us have voices that are inside our head, or maybe there are people outside of us, and those voices often seem loud. And those voices often say things like, you're not good enough. Um, God doesn't love you enough. 
you're not worthy. Um, you've got faults, and I will remind you of them. And yet in the middle of that, we need to hear another voice, which is God's voice, that says there is nothing in all creation that will separate you from the love of God. Life, nor death, nor demons, nor angels, nor heights, or depths, nor anything in all creation. No, anything you've ever thought or anything you've ever done in your life, nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of Christ. And Jesus shouts from the cross that song of deliverance. Now, what's the alternative? Verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the ones who trust in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all who are upright in heart. That is the dichotomy. Many are the woes of the wicked. And how many of us would say we've lived those woes? You know what I'm saying? And then on the other side, he says, but if you want joy, true joy, live upright in heart. Those are the two options. And you say, well, that is great, Stephen. I, I know that. I believe that. I know I'm forgiven but I still don't feel forgiven. And honestly, I can't forgive myself. And by the way, the enemy, the Bible says, is a liar. He's the father of lies. And so he constantly tells you, you're not worthy. What you did is not redeemable. What you did in your life is not overcomable. And Jesus is just reminding all of us that his voice shouts to us, such as you were, but now you are washed you're justified, you're sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God, you will move forward in forgiveness. We're reminded of the words of Paul in Romans, which says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It is finished. And therefore, we can leave knowing that we are blessed. Happy are those who know that they are forgiven. Now, I know when I speak like this, there's a couple of groups in the room. One are those individuals that have a tendency to think that they don't need God's help and that when it comes to forgiveness, they're doing a pretty good job on their own. On the scale of good to bad, they're Mr. Goodwrench. You know what I'm saying? And that's what they think. They think they've got it all together. And if that's you today... Can I just tell you, I, I just want to pray for you that you would realize that nobody's good enough. All of us are sinners. All of us have something wrong in our life. All of us have something, even the best of the best, are far from God. And, uh, and, and you need Him. And then there are those who, in this room today, would feel like uh, you'll never be good enough. And that God will never have enough forgiveness for you. And when you think about it today, you're overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and grief. And, and, and I would pray today that if that's you, and if you feel like you're not redeemable, that you would have your eyes open to how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God for you, how extravagant His grace is for you. I enjoyed talking to David after first hour. They, they, these guys do such a great job, and we're just chatting in the coffee area. And he said, uh, I said, hey, you guys did a great job today. He said, yeah, I thought, I thought the message was good. And I said, yeah, David, to be honest with you, uh, I, as I was preparing, I was like, man, I feel like, you know, this message for me is about a one, you know, on a scale from one to ten. Like, it's like a one, but God, you know, he's like a ten. And so averaged out, we're going to be a ten today. And he laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, throw your calculators away, friends. You think the average should be five? No, it's a 10, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. Throw your, throw your calculators out. <laughs> and what I realized is this, even on our worst days, God's our 10. Amen? 
I mean, even on our worst days. And we're like, man, I'm a zero today. And it's like, but hey, listen, God's a 10. We're not averaging at five. We're averaging a 10 today. Jesus Christ paid our price. He redeemed us. And, uh, and that's what we embrace today, his blessing. Blessed are those, blessed are those who realize that God has forgiven them. God, we thank you today for loving us. We thank you today for your grace and your mercy. And realize, God, that in your equation, that your grace is sufficient for us. And that your cross was, was complete. The work on the cross was complete. God, we know that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, that all of our sin, all of our death payment had been taken care of. And so, God, help us to not fall into the trap of the enemy's lies of believing that, that, uh, that you don't love us, or that you don't care for us, or that you don't have good things in store for us. Yeah, we're not perfect. There are days where all of us feel like big, fat zeros. But God... You're our 10, and, uh, and because of that, we average out together a nice, nice 10. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your forgiveness. And God, we love you, and we want to respond by just worshiping you today and respond by just saying, God, thank you. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. As Josh has done the last couple weeks, I'm going to be over here in the back just uh, standing or sitting. And as we worship here in a minute, if you want somebody to pray with